I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and I'd like to thank you for joining me for this first episode on Café Scolé, in which we seek to bring restful, contemplative learning back to our schools, homeschools, and lives. That is to say, to bring Scolé back to school. Why Café Scolé? Well, uh, Café, of course, makes one think about coffee. And if you're like me, coffee makes me think about a relaxing start to the day, maybe even a relaxing close to the afternoon. Um, In other words, coffee, to me anyway, is associated with something restful and contemplative, and also conversation. Skolé is a Greek word, a wonderful Greek word, that means something like undistracted time to study the things that are most worthwhile. It's, ironically, the root word for our English word, school. We might, we might call it restful or contemplative learning. That's at the root of skolé. It was a Greek word. Uh, Aristotle used it. Plato used it. In fact, Aristotle thought that one of the highest human activities, if not the highest activity, was contemplation or theoria in the context of skolé, which meant great, meaningful conversation in an undistracted place with your friends, talking about the things that are most important and worthwhile, the true, the good, the beautiful. This was... Uh, at the heights of human activity. This was fulfilling one's humanity. Don't you want a bit of scolé? And don't we need to recover scolé in our schools and homeschools? That's what this podcast is essentially going to address and circle around. It will be, if as it were, kind of the coffee table that we sit at a lot Uh, And from this particular gathering point, we may go a number of places as we consider how to work out scolé in our lives and in education, in our families, in our churches, in our culture. So welcome to Café Scolé. In this first podcast, I'm going to be speaking about, talking about, searching for scolé, Sabbath, and shalom as kind of the introductory podcast. And there's no guest with me. Uh, that won't be the case most of the time. But in this first this first podcast, probably the first two or three, uh, you'll just be hearing from me. And then I'll be inviting a variety of guests to join me as we discuss and explore Skolé in its many various expressions. So, searching for Skolé, Sabbath, and Shalom. For a while, I've been thinking about how we have lost our ability to rest in education since we've lost our ability to rest as human beings. Anyone who has followed my writing and speaking over the last several years knows that I've been advocating a return to scolé, or leisurely learning, in America. And by the way, 
So has Andrew Kern and the Circe Institute. We've been kind of partners in this joint attempt to recover Scolé or restful learning. I might also mention uh, Sarah McKenzie in her book, Teaching from Rest, which was a, an attempt to do this with homeschoolers, uh, quite a good attempt, in my opinion. By Scolé, I do mean undistracted time to study the things that are most worthwhile. Restful learning with friends, in a beautiful place, usually with good food and drink. As I've advocated for this return, I've had to reckon with the fact that I have a tough time resting myself. This is because I, too, am an American, and we Americans, we no longer know how to rest and have almost forgotten what it means to truly rest. Of course, there are some holdouts, a few odd people who still manage to read, sing, and seem comfortable in their own skins, and who often don't own a cell phone. Do you own a cell phone? I have a a number of philosopher friends, philosophy professors and such. They tend not to have cell phones, but I do. Yet rest is not an option for a Christian. It is a command. It is a command we ignore regularly and without a twinge of conscience so much of the time. The reason is simple and true, but repressed or masked work. And by work, I include the smaller idols dancing around it, money, status, freedom, comfort. We worry, what will happen if I don't do X or achieve Y by this or that time? Will I miss the opportunity for a better job, advancement, a more comfortable life? Truly setting aside Sunday for restful festivity often just doesn't feel right. Or like so many Americans, Sunday, or the weekend, is the diversion. Secular partying and rollicking good times. But diversionary fun leaves one unrested and then simply putting in time at boring work or school until the next fun escapade, usually lubricated with alcohol. Diversionary fun is a change of course or pace, a step away from something rather than a step to something that is deeply good. Many Americans think of the weekends this way. Am I not right? While diversion may keep us entertained, it is not what our souls long for, not what satisfies us at our core. What satisfies the soul's longing is what the soul longs for, and that is restful engagement with the true, good, and beautiful, and by implication with God himself, since anything true, good, or beautiful originates in God. It is Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and who is good but God alone? The Christian tradition tells us that we should rest. From Genesis on, Rest figures as an important part of human activity and fulfillment. Man is created on the sixth day, in effect waking up on the seventh day, the day of divine rest. We also know that this rest is more than mere relaxation. The biblical idea of a Sabbath rest incorporates deep satisfaction, festivity, celebration, and peace, also signaled by the Hebrew word shalom. Scolé, shalom. Rest is indeed a command, but we should not forget that divine commands are not meant to rob us of delight, but to bless us and give us joy. 
That is why David can extol God's law as a great delight in the longest psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 119. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 24. The command comes to us first, the command to rest, as the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's Exodus 20, verse 8. Did Israel keep the Sabbath faithfully? Not really. The book of Isaiah begins with a stinging indictment of the faithlessness of Israel and the ways Israel corrupted the Sabbath, making it a worthless ceremony no longer worthy of the name. Here's Isaiah 1, uh, verses 12 to 15. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. It's frightening to consider the possibility that God may not be listening to our prayers. But this represents just how far Israel had wandered. While they still honored God with their lips, their hearts were far from Him, and thus even their Sabbath-keeping was a worthless exercise. We know that throughout the Old Testament, God calls the Israelites back, calling them to repentance and faithfulness. We find, as well, the specific call to return to rest or Sabbath, which should mean uh, not mere ceremony, but a real returning to the Lord himself in the midst of worship, feast, and fellowship. Here's Isaiah 30, verse 15. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Also in the book of Isaiah, we find remarkable promises of restoration that describe the people of God at peace, enjoying shalom, and a blessed rest. Isaiah 55 and 56 beautifully represent the call and promise of rest extended by God to his people. Here's a passage from Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, Listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. You will go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. This is what the Lord says, Maintain justice, and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, 
the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. This passage wonderfully displays the union between shalom and Sabbath, or peace and rest, and their association with deep satisfaction, joy, and delight, all which come as a gift without cost to the people of God. It's hard to read this passage without thinking of the New Testament parallel when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is himself the promised rest, is he not? All the promises of God in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. The writer of Hebrews makes this explicitly clear, identifying the gospel of Christ as a message we believe, and in so doing, find rest. Here's Hebrews 4. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Now, have we forgotten how to rest? While rest is promised to us as a free gift, wine and milk without cost, it is apparently easy to be diverted from the richest of fare and persist on spending our time and money on what is not bread and what does not satisfy. Even the writer of Hebrews is compelled to exhort his Christian readers to, quote, make every effort to enter that rest, close quote. That's Hebrews 4.11. Apparently, it's not easy to enter rest. Apparently, we are easily distracted by some good-smelling fare that turns out to be the cheap stuff. Yet we go back and back. Do we who teach have our own distractions and diversions? Are there some cheap pedagogies that attract us promising quick results and easy application? Certainly there are. When we lift our hands to teach, is it possible that neither God nor our students are listening and that we have become a burden to them? If education in the Christian tradition means cultivating the souls of our sons and daughters, then education is a noble enterprise and one that should be done in and for peace, rest, shalom, and Sabbath. Not that all learning is restful, but isn't that what we're seeking to enter into? Yes, there is active learning. There are the six days of work. But where is the Sabbath rest when it comes to education? If we cultivate our children to love God, His ways, His creation, His church, and His creatures, then we are pursuing peace and rest. If we deviate from these ideals then we are heeding some alien voice, following another shepherd than the one we know. To do this is folly, a betrayal, and possibly even a rebellion. Why should anyone listen to these kinds of teachers? 
How many of our pedagogies have become near to worthless because we have wandered from the Lord in our educational ideals, unable to rightly understand our mission before God and for the sons and daughters of the church? Here's Isaiah 1 again. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. When a teacher does not understand, how can he or she teach? We know that Israel was regularly tempted by models, the models around her, by other nations and their gods and ideals. First, Israel demanded a king to be like all the other nations. Then Israel found some of the foreign gods captivating and went after them. The propensity to give allegiance to other gods was seen as early as the Exodus when the Israelites fashioned a golden calf while impatiently waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. Here's Exodus 32. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, are we not tempted by the ideals around us? What have we done with the gold that has been given us? What might be our pedagogical gods? We know them well, but more on that a bit later. If we are to avoid the sin of Aaron, what might we do instead with what we might call pedagogical gold? The classical Christian tradition of education insists that some learning that preceded the coming of Christ was to be rejected, but that some of it was consistent with Christian truth, but needed to be reoriented to serve Christ and his church. In Augustine's mind, the church did indeed receive some gold from pagan learning, but that gold needed to be refined, melted down, refashioned, and then put to its proper use. Here is a famous passage from Augustine's book on Christian doctrine, in which he makes this claim. He writes, Moreover, if those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said aught that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only not to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use, from those who have unlawful possession of it. For as the Egyptians had not only the idols and heavy burdens which the people of Israel hated and fled from, but also vessels and ornaments of gold and silver and garments, which the same people, when going out of Egypt, appropriated to themselves, designing them for a better use, not doing this on their own authority, but by the command of God, the Egyptians themselves, in their ignorance, providing them with things which they themselves were not making a good use of, in the same way all branches of heathen learning 
have not only false and superstitious fancies and heavy burdens of unnecessary toil, which every one of us, when going out under the leadership of Christ from the fellowship of the heathen, ought to abhor and avoid, but they contain also liberal instruction, which is better adapted to the use of the truth and some most excellent precepts of morality and some truths in regard even to the worship of the one God are found among them. That's among the Egyptians, among the heathens, among classical humans before the coming of Christ. Now these, that's me speaking, by the way. Now these are, so to speak, their gold and silver, which they did not create themselves, but dug out of the mines of God's providence, which are everywhere scattered abroad and are perversely and unlawfully prostituting to the worship of devils. These, therefore, the Christian, when he separates himself in spirit from the miserable fellowship of these men, ought to take away from them and to devote to their proper use in preaching the gospel. Their garments also, that is, human institutions, such as are adapted to that intercourse with men which is indispensable in this life, we must take and turn to a Christian use. That's from chapter 40 in Augustine's On Christian Doctrine, section 60, if you want to read it yourself. What a powerful passage. And this passage essentially indicates what the Christian church has said about classical pagan learning prior to the Incarnation. That is the position that has been most dominant in the history of Christianity, that we take the good, that gold that has been mined by others outside of the church, and we refine it and fashion it to its proper use. So there's some discontinuity, some things that we cast aside and do not take with us. But there's some continuity with classical learning prior to the Incarnation that we do take and turn, as Augustine says, to a Christian use. Augustine notes what Israel should have done, but did not do well. The Egyptians gave Israel gold, jewelry, and vessels by the command of God. The gold was good, but the Egyptians had not put it to good use. The Israelites, under the leadership of Yahweh, would put the gold to its proper use, particularly in the adornment of the tabernacle and temple in the worship of God. Ah, but of course Israel was not always faithful. Augustine compares the pagan tradition of literature and the liberal arts to that of Egyptian gold. Some pagan learning is true and in harmony with our faith. That's a quote from Augustine. And therefore is good. But it has not been put to good use. Such gold that has been dug out of the mines of God's providence by others needs to be melted down and refashioned and devoted to the proper use in preaching the gospel. The Exodus narrative and Augustine's commentary remind us that both pagans and Christians can misappropriate the gold found in the mines of God's providence. And by the way, when I use the word pagan, I don't mean 
to use it in a pejorative sense. Pagan just means those who lived before Christ in this context. Pagan uh, literally meant farmer or country dweller in the past. The Egyptians may not have managed this gold well, but nor did the Israelites start or finish with a stellar record. Moses did better than most, and Augustine notes that Moses himself was, quote, learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, close quote. That's Acts 7.22, by the way. In other words, Moses had refined the gold he received and put it to its better and proper use. As classical educators, we should be sobered and instructed by the Exodus narrative and Augustine's commentary. We, too, are prone to wander and fashion idols from our own golden inheritance. We are prone to receive and heed a tradition from the nations around us, as it were, and to worship their gods and ideals. What are those, quote, educational idols, close quote? They should come easily to mind to educate for money, status, and comfort. That's the golden trinity of American secular society. Money, status, comfort. These ideals demand various educational practices or pedagogies. We train students instrumentally to acquire skills for work and good jobs. And by this we mean good-paying jobs. In short, any pedagogy or training that results in earning a good living, not necessarily living a good life, becomes our practical norm. The upshot of it all is that we are governed by our love of money and therefore agitated by a near constant anxiety that afflicts all people who pursue riches and comfort. We are not at rest, nor do we teach from rest, nor do we impart rest to our students. Our educational anxiety thus partakes of a generalized American anxiety that currently plagues this nation. Educational ideals always reveal what it is that a people or a nation seek at the deepest level. A hundred years ago, the nation's ideals were in large part goodness of character and virtue along with practical know-how. The so-called greatest generation that fought and won the Second World War was the fruit of this kind of education. This generation was called great because it was good, to paraphrase what many have described as de Tocqueville's conclusion about American culture when he wrote Democracy in America in 1835. Sadly, for a variety of reasons not worth noting here at the moment, American know-how turned into an obsession for assessing, measuring, and slotting Americans into an industrialized democracy where everyone found his place. Then our growing prosperity grew to become our own nemesis as we, like the Israelites in the promised land, began to say, my hands and my strength has made me this wealth. That's Deuteronomy 8. In so doing, we forgot God as the source of all blessing and wealth, and we have each turned to our own way. Our current educational ideals and practices reflect this turn, and we are reaping the whirlwind, and we are filled with anxiety. We are anything but rested, restful, or at peace. What this means for classical Christian educators is clear, yet difficult. We must repent 
and turn back to the source of all rest, peace, and wealth. He says, come unto me, and we must come. We must shed the national ideals that have become our idols, and we must melt down the gold and put it to its proper use. We must celebrate the Sabbath once again with joy, delight, and the richest of fare. Well, thank you for joining me for this podcast on Searching for Scholae, Sabbath, and Shalom. I hope you join me in future podcasts. In the next few, I hope to address Scholae in Scripture, Scholae in the Classical Tradition, and Scholae in the Ecclesial Tradition. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.